morning. Thank you so much for being here this morning. And if you are in our overflow room or watching us online, thank you as well for joining us. So I came across a term recently that I'd never heard before. You may be familiar with it. It was brand new to me. Uh, This term is called illusory superiority. This is a term that is used by psychologists to describe the fact that we all believe that we are above average when compared with our peers in virtually every area of life. Uh, This is true across all different parts of life, and it's true with all people. We all believe that we are 50% or better when compared with those who work with us or our peers or co-workers, whatever. We believe that we are above average. Now, study after study after study has shown this to be true. One of the most famous studies was a 1977 survey of college professors, and the question was asked, do you believe that your IQ, when compared with other professors, is above average? A stunning 94% said they were above average when compared with their peers. Now, obviously, that can't be true. Nearly everyone said they were above average in their IQ, but half of those logically had to be wrong. But it's not just college professors. It's all of us. We all believe that we are above average. If I said, are you an above average driver? Even if you've had five wrecks this month and you can't get insurance, you will say, well, yes, I I think I'm above average. If I say, are you above average when compared with your coworkers, you would say, yes, I'm, I'm above average. Even if all the facts say otherwise you will rank yourself above average. When it comes to morals and ethics, even if you are a rascal, you will say, yes, I'm above average. I may not be the best, but I am better than most in my moral decisions and in my choices. Now, here's why we do this, by the way. When we analyze ourselves, we also analyze things like intentions. We analyze emotions. Um, We analyze obstacles that were in our way. Uh, We talk about the heart that was behind it. And when we analyze someone else, we only analyze results. And so if I said to you, hey, you put yourself down as above average, um, as a worker in your job at your company, yet you were late to work 10 times last month, you would say to me, yeah, I know I was late 10 times, but I didn't mean to hit the snooze button. It just somehow happened. Like my hand, while I was asleep, just went over and hit it. And I don't know how it happened. And you would say, you know, and my wife, and she was supposed to get me up. And then she didn't have my outfit ready on time. And then traffic and say, I intended to be there on time. And so, yeah, I was late 10 times, but that's not what I intended to do. So I rank myself above average. Whereas with others, you would say, well, obviously, he's below average as an employee because he was late 10 times. We do this across every area of life except for one. There's one part of life where we rate ourselves below average. It's how we look. We rate ourselves below average in our bodies and how we appear to others. I saw an article this past week on supermodels 
and how famous they are for insecurities about their bodies. Now, we call them supermodels because they're not just above average. They are at the very top. We pay them for how they look because we as a society believe that they look that good. And yet, in their minds, when they look at themselves, they believe that they don't look good. There were several examples. One is Anne V. She's a Russian supermodel, and she is famously insecure over the fact that she believes she's too pale and she doesn't like her freckles. Uh, Jaseel Bunkin is a Brazilian model, and she says that her nose is too big and her eyes are too small. Carly Kloss, who Vogue magazine said at one point it was one of the top 30 models in the world, one of the 30 most beautiful women in the world, and she said her shoulders were too broad and she was too tall. And then this is an older one, but Elizabeth Taylor in her heyday was considered one of the most beautiful actresses in all of Hollywood, yet she was always insecure over the fact that she felt like her neck was too long and she hated the way her neck looked. Now, I know it seems like, like I'm picking on women. Honestly, that was all I could find. Guys have insecurities, but they will not admit it. Uh, in fact, a guy could look like this and still say to his buddies, I think I look pretty good. You know, I think the women really, really like me a lot. But guys have the exact same insecurities. And here's, here's how we know this is true. Literally in this country, we spend billions of dollars every year on everything from plastic surgery to beauty supplies to gym memberships to fad diets to make ourselves look better because we view ourselves and we believe we don't look that good. We don't measure up. So today we are talking about how to have the perfect body. And let me just encourage you with this. You can have the perfect body, and it won't cost you a dime, and it won't take hours of your time. So here's how it will happen. If you've got a Bible with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we are getting towards the end of a long series that we have been in on the book of 1 Corinthians. If you've been here with us for this book, uh, this study, you know that we call this a book, but it's actually a letter. It was written by a guy named Paul, who is a missionary in the early church, to the church in the ancient city of Corinth. First uh, Corinthians was written in response to a letter that they had sent him with a lot of questions about a lot of different areas of life. And one of those areas that they were questioning Paul had to do with the resurrection of the body, the physical resurrection of the body that is promised to all of those who believe in Christ, that one day we will get physically resurrected bodies. In this time period, in the Roman Empire, the belief in the afterlife went something like this. <clears throat> when an individual died, they believed that individual would go to the underworld, what we call Hades, and there on the shore of the river Styx, he would wait for the ferryman named Charos, to take him in a ferry across the river Styx to the other side where the individual would be judged. Uh, if they were judged as having been good in life, uh, they would go to what we would call paradise. If they were judged as having been bad in life, they would go to what we would call hell. And if they were judged as not having been really good or bad, 
uh, they would go to these fields that were neither pleasant nor unpleasant and kind of a neutral place, and they would spend eternity there. Now, if you've ever seen a movie where they have uh, buried someone who has died in ancient Rome, you'll notice that they put two coins over their eyes or a coin in their mouth. Uh, That is to pay the ferryman to get across the river. Otherwise, they have to wander along the banks of the river Styx for a hundred years before Kairos will take them across to the other side. Now, that particular view is a general view that changed and morphed a lot over the centuries. Um, There's not one particular view that you can say, this is what everyone who lived in the Roman Empire believed. Uh, They adopted their views from the Greeks, and then a few things changed, and they changed a few things again. And and so there's not one uniform view of the afterlife. However, they all believe that in the afterlife, we exist as souls only, as spirits only. The idea of having a physical body in the afterlife was absolutely ridiculous to them. They adopted this view from the Greeks, and the Greeks basically said this, that before you were born, you existed as a soul. And then your soul came into your body and existed in your body for as long as you were alive. And then then at the moment of, of death, your soul is released from your body to go to the afterlife. And, and the Greeks believed that the body was inherently evil, um, that, that the soul is inherently good, but it is corrupted by the physical body. And so to remain in the body in the afterlife for them just did not make sense because the body is evil. Why would you have a body in the afterlife? So this view, this Roman slash Greek view of the afterlife bled over into the church in Corinth and they had questions for Paul about the resurrection of the body. Chapter 15 is Paul's answer to some question they asked about our physically resurrected bodies. It is, a, it is a beautiful chapter. If you've not read all of 15, please, please, I would encourage you to go and read that chapter. We're just going to read the last portion of it, but it is a beautiful, almost epic chapter about the resurrection. In this chapter, in the first part of the chapter, there are two particular issues he addresses. The first is this. First part of 15, Paul says, we know the gospel is true because of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Paul spends time saying, here's how we know that this gospel message is true because Jesus lived, he said he would die, he said he would be raised three days later, and Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. And Paul even goes on to say, hey, don't just take my word for it. Over 500 people saw the physically resurrected Jesus. I mean, they witnessed this. If you want to know why the gospel spread like wildfire in the early church, all you've got to do is read 1 Corinthians 15, and it makes total sense. I mean, over 500 people saw this, and they went, and they told others, and they said, I know this to be true, and I will die for this truth because I saw Jesus physically resurrected from the dead. And anyone who is able to accomplish that, they pretty much get credibility, credibility on anything else that they have said. And so the gospel is true because Jesus was raised from the dead. Then the second thing that Paul says in chapter 15 is, if there is no bodily resurrection, as some in the church in Corinth were claiming, that there's no bodily resurrection, that we only exist as souls, 
If there's no bodily resurrection, then, logically speaking, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead either. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, Paul goes on to say, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then go back up here to number one, the gospel isn't true. There was no resurrection, then the gospel is not true, and we just all need to go home. I mean, you've heard me say this before. The gospel isn't true. What are we doing here? Just go home. Go back to bed. Go watch a movie. Go do something else. Don't stay here. Don't read your Bible. Don't, don't, don't come on Christmas and Easter. You know, if the gospel isn't true, then why are we here? If the resurrection didn't happen, then why are we here? Just go home. But if it is true, if the gospel is true, if the resurrection did happen, then it is worth giving everything to it. If it is true, then half-hearted devotion to Jesus doesn't make sense. Logically speaking, it doesn't make sense. Paul would say, just choose. If you don't believe it, then just go home. But if you do believe it, pursue Jesus with everything you've got. Because if it's true, it is the most important thing. And you need to treat it like it's the most important thing. So Paul, in the first part of 15, addresses those two issues. And then in the last half of 15, he answers three questions about the specifics of the resurrection. The first question that he asks is, what will be the nature of our resurrected bodies? What will our bodies look like? So look what Paul said in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? So likely the letter from the Corinthians to Paul asked these very questions. And then Paul responds with, how foolish. Now likely Paul said that because of the way that they were asking the questions. There were those in Corinth who were sarcastically asking Paul these questions about the resurrected body. Saying things like, oh yeah, you say there's going to be a resurrection. Well, that doesn't make sense. Hey, Paul, my grandfather's 85 years old and he has a bad back and he walks with a hunch. How's that going to be in heaven? How's he, is he going to spend all of eternity walking like an old man hunched over? That doesn't make sense, Paul. My son went off to war and he lost his arm in the war. Will he go through all of eternity without an arm? Paul, that's not logical. My, my second child was four years old when he died. Will he live for all of eternity as a four-year-old? And they scoffed at the idea of a bodily resurrection. So Paul says, look, your questions are foolish. And then he uses three analogies to explain why. The first analogy is that seeds and plants are different. Look at what he wrote in verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives his own body. So here's, here's what Paul is saying here. Seeds and plants are different, yet they're not. They're different, but they have the same DNA. And I know this is kind of hard for us to get sometimes. Um, we do not live in an agrarian society, and you know, if you ask Ask my kids, where do apples come from? They will say Publix or Kroger. That's where, you know, apples come from. However, we know that apples come from apple seeds. So I brought a few this morning. I know that 
this is hard for you to see, so you're going to have to trust me. These are apple seeds. I got them out of the apple myself. So are these seeds and this the same? Well, kind of, yes, but not really. These planted in the ground with water and sunshine and the right care become this. They have the same DNA, but they're not the same. And if you asked me for an apple, and I gave you one of these, you'd go, ha, 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 real funny. That's not what I meant. That's not what I want. I want an apple, not an apple seed. But imagine for just a minute that in your lifetime, you had never actually seen one of these. All you had ever seen were apple seeds. That's all you knew. If someone said apple, that's what you pictured was an apple seed. And you came across someone who had seen an apple before, and they had seen an apple tree, and they said to you, don't you just love eating apples? It's not, no, they don't fill you up at all. They're just tiny little seeds. And they said, aren't apples great? You can make an apple pie, you can make apple sauce, you can make apple butter. And you'd say, out of these? That, that doesn't make sense. It's not logical. I can't visualize that. Paul's argument here is, yes, you're having trouble visualizing the resurrected body that we will be given. However, I have seen a resurrected body. I saw the body of Jesus. And while you can only picture the physical body, I have seen the resurrected body. And yes, they're different, but they're the same. Just like an apple seed and an apple are different, but they're the same. The second analogy he uses is that humans and animals have different flesh. So verse 39, not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. Here's Paul's point. We use the word flesh for dogs, for birds, for fish, for people. We all say flesh, but they're different kinds of flesh. And he says, if we can see this in nature, then why can't we understand that physical bodies that are resurrected have flesh, even though it's different from the bodies that we have now on earth? And then the third analogy is bodies are made for their purpose. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon and the stars another, and stars differ in splendor. So basically what he's saying here is we use the term body to describe earthly bodies, to describe heavenly bodies, and yet they are different and they have different purposes. And if we can observe that in nature, then why can't we believe that it's true when it comes to our earthly bodies and our heavenly bodies? So then Paul goes on and he describes the difference between our earthly bodies and our heavenly bodies. Verse 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. So he compares the two and says, look, the natural body and the spiritual body are different. The natural body is perishable. You get sick. 
You get diseases. Bodies die. We know that. The spiritual body is imperishable. It will never get sick or die. The natural body is sown in dishonor or sown in sin. Our natural bodies all have within them this thing called original sin. And you've heard me say this before. It's why you do not have to teach your two-year-old to lie to you. It's because they are born as sinners. It's why you do not have to teach the two-year-old in preschool to hit another two-year-old to get the toy back from that other two-year-old. It's because of this thing called original sin. So our earthly bodies are sown in sin. Our heavenly bodies, there's no sin. We will not sin in our heavenly bodies. Our natural body is sown in weakness. That is a spiritual weakness. Our spiritual body has spiritual power. Our natural body is limited. In our spiritual body, there are no limits. So what does this look like? I mean, is there any way that we can get a picture of what our resurrected bodies will look like? Well, we can. Not a full picture, but we can get a picture by looking at how the New Testament describes the resurrected Jesus. There are several passages. Here is one that's found in Luke 24. Uh, This takes place, obviously, after the resurrection. The disciples are meeting together, and they're wondering about what to do next. Then verse 36. While they were still talking about all of this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. So they're in a place and they're gathered together, and then suddenly Jesus appears. So from this, we can determine that while there is a physical body, it's not limited by physical things like walls. Jesus just suddenly appears to them. So much so that they thought it was a ghost. Well, notice what Jesus says to them. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Verse 39. Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So the physical body of Jesus had flesh and bones. They were able to touch him. They thought he was a ghost, but if they reached out, their hands would not go through his body like it would through Casper the Friendly Ghost. I mean, he was a physical being. This tells us that we will have physical bodies in eternity that that you can touch that have flesh. In verse 40, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it, and I can't blame the disciples, I wouldn't either, You know, the guy died on the cross and he's back. And, you know, how do you make sense of all of this? Because of joy and amazement, uh, believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Meaning, we in eternity will get to eat. Now, do we have to eat? We don't know. But we will get to eat in eternity. Now, one of the things you have to keep in mind is... This was 2,000 years ago. This was before the invention of Crisco. Had this been today, they would have given Jesus a piece of fried catfish, hush puppies, french fries, and coleslaw, because you have to have a vegetable to go along with all the fried food, right? That's all they had was broiled fish. The point is is that Jesus was able to eat, and we know that our, our resurrected bodies will look like the resurrected body of Jesus. And so in eternity, we will get to eat. Okay, Paul continues, verse 45. So it is written, 
The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. So throughout the New Testament, Paul will refer to Adam, the first man, and then to Jesus as the second Adam, or here, the last Adam. And so the first one was an earthly body. The first Adam was given an earthly body. The second Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, the Adam, the physical body came first. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. All of us are descendants of Adam. We all have earthly bodies that came from Adam. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. If you are a follower of Christ, you are also a descendant of Christ, is what Paul is saying here. Just as you get the body of Adam, or as you have now the body of Adam, you will get the resurrected body like Christ had. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, Adam, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. So in this section, Paul says, hey, this is what your resurrected bodies will look like. Then in the next section, he asks and answers the question, how will we receive these resurrected bodies? Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Your physical body and my physical body cannot go into heaven because that is an imperishable place and we have perishable bodies and our bodies will not fit. We have to receive these new resurrected bodies in order for them to fit in heaven. Then he says, here's how it will happen. Verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not not all sleep but we will all be changed. Now, the word mystery here does not mean that it's something we can't know. Uh, In the New Testament, when you see the word mystery, many times what it means, like here, is something that was hidden that has now been revealed. The reason Paul uses that term here is in the Old Testament, the Jews very much believed in a general bodily resurrection. I mean, that was a firm belief. They did not believe that that we just exist as spirits or souls in eternity. They believed in the resurrection, but how it looked was unclear. It, It was a mystery to them. Paul said when Jesus died and rose from the dead, it unlocked this hidden mystery. Suddenly it became clear what the bodily resurrection is all about. So Paul here says, hey, let me tell you this. Let me tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Sleep in the New Testament uh, often refers to death because if you're a follower of Christ, death is not forever. And so the term sleep is used. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And so we will all be changed. Here's what Paul is saying here. The second coming of Christ, at the second coming, all of those who have died in Christ, they will rise first and they will receive their brand new resurrected bodies. And then after that, we who are left will not die, will be changed and will receive our resurrected bodies. And it all will happen like that. 
in an instant. Paul says in a flash, in a nanosecond, in the twinkling of an eye, it will happen. There will be no warning. When the second coming happens, there will not be music leading up to it. It will not be like going to an Elvis concert where the music plays for four minutes or five minutes. You know, getting the crowd worked up, knowing that he's going to appear. And at any moment, it will be nothing like that. It will be right then. Christ appears. There's a loud trumpet. There's the voice of the archangel. And in a flash, all of this happens. Paul refers to this several times. Let me give you one other reference. If you're taking notes, 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul talks about the same thing and uses the same language. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, about those who have died in Christ, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. If you're not a follower of Christ, death is it. And there's no hope. Now, what, what hope does the world have after death? Nothing. But if you're a follower of Christ, you may grieve at death, at the loss of a loved one, but you don't grieve like the world because it's not the end. You do not grieve like those who have no hope. For we, who believe, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, go back to what Paul talked about earlier, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. And so at the second coming, when Jesus comes back, He brings with Him all of those who have died in Christ. And then, according to the Lord's Word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will certainly not perceive those who have fallen asleep. Here's what Paul says. Those who have died in Christ, they got in line first to get their resurrected body. So we, if we're left, we do not get to go ahead of them. There's no cutsies. There's no skipping in line. They get their resurrected bodies, and then after that, we will get ours. And then here's what Paul says that was very similar to what he said earlier. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. Again, exactly how that will sound, we don't know, but it will happen in one instant. Is everything's happening at once. There'll be a loud trumpet heard by the world. And the dead in Christ, their physical bodies, will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And we will receive our resurrected bodies, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Paul here says in just one instant at the second coming of Christ, all of this will happen. Okay, verse 53, he goes on and says, For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true Death has been swallowed up in victory. And then verse 55, Paul, the only way to describe this is Paul smack talks death. And he basically smack talks the grim reaper. And he says, for those who have died in Christ, here's what we say. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Yeah, for the sting of death is sin meaning we are all born with original sin. And because of that sin, we die. When Adam and Eve were created, they were created to live forever. And then they sinned. And that brought about physical death. And the power of sin is the law. 
Meaning the moral law of God is what condemns us. We've broken that law. That is what condemns us. And that is why we die. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where death is your victory? In Christ, it is gone. Where is your sting? In Christ, it is gone. For the believer, death loses its power. It loses its sting. Paul here mixes, by the way, a couple Old Testament verses, one from Isaiah and one from Hosea, that basically say this, that in Christ, that we are given this resurrected body and death has lost its sting. Okay, then the final thing, the final question that Paul asks is this. So what? What does all of this matter? The resurrection, the physical bodies that we will get, what does all of this matter? Here's what Paul wrote, verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. So look at all of chapter 58, all that he has written about the resurrection, and he gets to this point and he says, Therefore, this is why it matters. This is what you should do in light of all that I have written. Here's what you should do. Number one, stand firm. Let nothing move you. And then always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There are two things that Paul says we ought to do in light of all of this. Number one is never move in believing. Stand firm in the gospel. It is so easy to let our hearts begin to move towards other things. Every four years as pastor, I've seen it in every church that I've served. Our hearts begin to move towards putting our hope in a certain political party. And we get all excited when our party wins and all defeated when our party loses. And Paul here says, stand firm in the gospel, not in the hope of a political party. Your hope, your faith is not in who sits behind the desk in the Oval Office. It is in Christ and in Christ alone. Our hearts began to move towards finances. And we began to look at our 401ks. And we began to look at how much money we have in our account. And we began to put our hope in that. And Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it. Stand Stand firm in the gospel, even in good things like our family or certain relationships. We'll begin to let our hearts move towards those things. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Stand firm in the gospel at the end of the day and at the end of your days. That's what matters. And that's the only thing that matters. This past Friday, I did a graveside service for an individual in our church who had died. And I got to the cemetery early, and Friday was a beautiful day. The sunshine was out, and um, because I, I was there early, I just spent some time walking around the cemetery. And it's one of these things that I will do when I, when I do these funerals, and I know it's a little weird. I like to read tombstones, and, and I know that's kind of strange and a little bit morbid. I, I just like to see the tombstones and what was said about them, and, and one of the things I really like to do is to try to find the, the person who lived the longest, and I'll just go around and calculate, you know, and here's when they were born, and here's when they died. And on Friday, I found a lady who was born in 1895 and died in 1994. She was 99 years old. And I thought, man, they couldn't give her, you know, just a few more months. I mean, she almost made it to 100. I thought, that's a long time. I mean, if somebody asks you, you know, do you want to live to be 99? Most of us say, yeah, that's, that's a long life. 
no matter what she had done in life, no matter how much she had accumulated, no matter how many different things that she had, relationships, no matter how much she had in those 99 years, the only thing that mattered when she died was, was she standing firm in the gospel? Paul says, don't move. In light of the promise of the resurrection, stand firm in the gospel. But then here's the second thing. Never move in believing, but always move in serving. Paul says, because of this, stand firm on the foundation of the gospel, but run, run, run hard after Jesus. Always look for ways to serve. Always look for things that you can do for the Lord. Always, always, always be moving in your serving in light of this promise of the resurrection. I mean, is that something you're doing? Are you looking for ways that you can serve the Lord? Are you looking for ways you can serve the Lord in your family? Is faith in your family the priority, the number one priority? Or are you letting other things crowd it out? Parents, let me say this to you. And you're here, and so I'm preaching to the choir. I get that, but make church a priority in your family. You will establish a foundation in your children that will matter for generations to come if you will make sure that nothing interferes with your pursuing faith in your family and church being a priority. Dads, if you're in here, we're starting a thing in February called Like Father, Like Son, where dads will go through the book of Proverbs with their kids. Dads, you need to sign up for that. Make sure that that is a priority. We will give you the tools and the resources to do it, but you make sure that you are doing that so that you can instill in your son this faith foundation. Are you serving in the church, or is this just something where you come and you do your thing and check your box and you're gone? Are you looking for ways to serve? I know this has been a weird year with all the COVID stuff, but, but we are gearing back up. And we need volunteers in every area, especially in our next-gen area. Are you finding ways to serve the Lord in every aspect of life? And here's why you need to do that. Here's why. Here's what Paul said. Never move in your believing and always move in your serving and in your work because... You know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Think about how many things in life that we we give our money to these things, we give our time to these things, we give so much effort to these things, and at the end of our days, they're in vain. They just won't matter. But Paul says, whatever it is that you do for the Lord, it is not in vain. And for all of eternity. It matters.